How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. We've all heard that cancer can be beaten, but what if we had better ways to predict cancer? And what if a tailored plan could be developed to intervene early in the process? Dr. Adam Kinnaird is both an MD and a PhD, conducting leading-edge research in the area of prostate cancer. Dr. Kinnaird is a urological surgeon who graduated as a Vanier Scholar with the Governor General's Gold Medal at the University of Alberta. He is an award-winning researcher, and he recently completed an international fellowship at UCLA, and he joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Kinnaird, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking everyone, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of health? So that's a great question. And I will preface this by saying that I am a clinician and a researcher, but I'm not an artificial intelligence specialist. So I would say that as AI applies to me and it applies to to clinical research, What it does is it provides basically uh, an equalization platform where you can take a program, uh, you can teach it, you can use machine learning to teach it to become expert level, and you can basically export that anywhere in the world. So you can take uh, a career of 25 years of learned expertise in, in a particular subspecialty, And then you can take that to a community anywhere uh, in Canada, whether it's with pathology or whether it's with radiology. Uh, So I think I see it as a a great equalizer. That sounds amazing. And we're going to dig into that more when we talk about your research. But before we get there, I understand that you used to play hockey for the U of A Golden Bears and you won two national championships. How did you juggle being an elite athlete with uh, with going to med school? What did that look like? <laughs> it was uh, certainly a busy time, but uh, I had a lot of fun. Med school is a, a really fun time. You meet a lot of really uh, accomplished people, and you look around the room and you say, how did I end up here? How did I make it here? And uh, at the same time, playing for the Golden Bears. The Golden Bears are uh, uh, they have a great history, uh, made a lot of friends, lifelong friends, and I really uh, enjoyed uh being a part of the team uh, with great coaches, great mentors. And the really nice thing is that uh, during the week, all practices were on campus. So rather than having to uh, head from the library to go out of town for something, it was just uh, across quad to, uh, to the rink and then back to the library to study. Well, that's nice. It makes it a little bit more manageable, I suppose, but still busy. Um, yeah. Do you have time now to do any sports or is your life pretty full with medicine? Uh, no, I uh, still play hockey. You know, with COVID, things uh, things shut down, and I was also down in California, and I didn't join a team down there. Um, but now that I'm back, I'm going to be starting sort of shinny hockey. I, I no longer play as a goalie. I play as a forward. It's more fun to score goals now. And uh, and then I'm starting up playing some ball hockey uh, as well with uh, with my brother. So it's really fun. Fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your work. So along with your MD, you also did a PhD in translational medicine. 
I have no idea what translational medicine is. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my PhD in uh, at the University of Alberta uh, with Dr. Evangelos Michalakis, who is a great mentor, and he continues to be a mentor for me. And now we are uh, sharing lab space uh, as well with uh, Dr. Michalakis and Dr. Gopinath Satendra. And what translational research means is, so if you break down research into sort of three different pillars where you have sort of what people used to call basic science, which is now called discovery research. And then you have on the other extreme, you have clinical research. Translational research is the bridge uh, between them. And so if you discover a new molecular process and then you come up with a drug for it, uh, translational research is basically testing that drug in animal models, taking it to early phase clinical trials, and then getting it to, to late stage phase three clinical trials in, in the clinical realm. So that's what translational research is all about. It's sort of the bridge between discovery and clinical research. Yeah, very interesting. It, it sounds like it's kind of the pathway to getting to that practicality of, of the implementation that clinical research can bring. So how does this apply to your current specialty in urology? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that every, every single uh, drug or therapy uh, that is out there has gone through the translational research process um, in urology. Uh, there are a couple uh, really cool things that we do. We use uh, robots to operate, for example. So basically creation of that technology and then testing it out in preclinical uh, models and then eventually bringing it to the OR. Same thing for other technologies like lasers we use to break kidney stones uh, or to even to uh, nucleate prostate tissue, uh, whether for an enlarged prostate or for cancer. And then when you look at some of the research that I'm doing right now, uh, there are a couple uh, technologies that we're using. So um, one of them is I'm collaborating with artificial intelligence experts or computer scientists at, at UCLA, uh, and we are do, using machine learning to uh, basically develop algorithms for semi-automation or full automation of reading MRIs of the prostate to come up with sort of risk scores for, uh, you know, does this look low risk for cancer or does it look high risk for cancer? Does it need a biopsy? Um, and so that's sort of in the translational stage. And then we will eventually take it to, uh, to the patient in a clinical setting. Very interesting. I definitely want to talk about the risk scores uh, in, in a moment, but I heard the word robots and I'm going to pick up on that just a little bit because um, I think, you know, we have sort of an idea of, uh, of what a robot is. But in the context of your work, um, what does that look like in terms of using robots? Can you talk a bit more? Yeah, about so that basically, so in urology, uh, so when you think of surgery, there are a couple different types of surgeries that you can do. There are sort of the open surgery, that's the classic surgery where you use a scalpel and basically you, you make an incision and, and, and you're looking directly at the organ with your own eyes. And then there is laparoscopic surgery. And laparoscopic surgery is sort of these this little keyhole surgery where you're making little incisions that are just a centimeter in size and then you're putting in ports and you're using cameras to go in and it's minimally invasive. And then there's robotic surgery and robotic surgery is... Uh, used mostly in the minimally invasive setting where basically you make these small incisions, you put in your access ports, and then rather than instruments that are directly connected to your hands going into the patient, these instruments are connected to a robot that has three arms. 
or more than more than three arms actually because there's a, a camera as well but it gives you three functional arms and you can operate two of them at once and it uh, allows you to make very fine delicate movements and do precise dissection so uh, we use that throughout uh, throughout many different urological procedures uh, i did this during uh, my residency right now i'm actually uh, not using the robot i'm doing other minimally invasive approaches uh, but it is a very very interesting technology that uh, is is good for patients. That is super cool. I, I know so little about surgery. I, my only touch point for surgery is I'm rewatching Grey's Anatomy on uh, on Netflix, and, and I know that their surgeries get incredibly messy. So I'm imagining this robot making things um, a lot nicer, safer. Um, let's turn to talk a, a little bit more about your work in the realm of prostate cancer. Um, now, this is an area, again, that I think many of us have heard of, but we may not really know exactly what is prostate cancer, um, how many people are affected, how many men are affected by it. Can you kind of paint us a bit of a picture of, uh, about all of that? Um, tell us a little bit about prostate cancer and how it's currently diagnosed. Absolutely. So prostate cancer is a very common cancer. In fact, it's the most common internal malignancy uh, meaning uh, cancer that is on the inside of the body, so cancer other than skin cancer. Uh, so it's the most common internal malignancy in men. It affects between one in six and one in seven uh, Canadian men throughout their life. And it is a disease that um, it doesn't present with symptoms. You, it, it doesn't make your skin turn yellow. It doesn't present with a lump that you can feel, for example, on your testicle or in, on, 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 in your breast. Um, it is something that you usually are asymptomatic for, so it makes detection of it somewhat difficult. Uh, and men are very surprised when they are diagnosed with it because they say, well, I, I don't feel any different. I'm surprised I'm getting this diagnosis. But it's really important to diagnose prostate cancer early because there is virtually a, a greater than 99% cure rate, if uh, at least 10-year cure rate, if it is detected early and it can be treated with surgery or with radiation or now with newer therapies as well that I'm studying. Um, so yeah, so, de so detection, early detection of prostate cancer is very important. So you've mentioned your, your current project um, a couple of times, and perhaps we could turn to that and, and have a little bit of a chat about that. Um, so you're working with researchers. Um, you mentioned coming back from UCLA uh, pretty recently, and you're developing these precision diagnostics and um, getting at this idea of early prediction. Can you tell us more about how that works? How exactly are you, are you going about this work? So in this particular project, we are studying men where we know that they have prostate cancer. And so a, a critical thing to know about prostate cancer is that prostate cancer is a spectrum. There is low risk. In fact, there's very low risk. There's low risk, intermediate risk, high risk, and very high risk. And so um, what we do for men with low risk prostate cancer, which is predominantly just surveilling them, making sure that the prostate cancer does not get worse, versus what we do for men with higher risk cancer, which is removing the prostate or radiating the prostate, or even sometimes getting some medical therapies uh, for it, is, is very different. So in my particular research project is we are looking at the, the patient population for men who are diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer and are being watched. And the type of watching that we're doing is called active surveillance. And that means that we're not just forgetting about them. Uh, that means that 
We are seeing them every six months. We're getting a blood test every six months, and we are uh, having a feel of their prostate once a year. And then every several years, we are doing a biopsy on them. And that is the current standard of care uh, in Canada. And the issue with that is we are waiting several years between times when we know that the cancer is low risk and when the cancer could be higher risk. And that can only be done with the biopsy. And when the pathologist looks at it under the microscope and says, this is low risk cancer or nope, this is more aggressive uh, cancer. So with my project, what uh, we're trying to do is we're trying to better risk stratify men. And so we are trying to take into account not just a blood test, uh, the PSA, and not just a finger test, and not just a biopsy that's done periodically, but we are using advanced imaging techniques. So MRI or a new type of ultrasound called micro ultrasound that for the first time uh, could be a, a, a real time uh, bedside test for look, seeing prostate cancer, as well as we are using next generation uh, genetic sequencing, where we are looking at the genetics of a patient uh, to determine whether uh, he is high risk uh, of developing aggressive prostate cancer. And something with th this particular type of genetics that we're doing that is really important is we are looking at the germline genetics of the patient. And what germline means is it means it's the DNA that you are born with. So right from conception, you, we could potentially do this test on you until the day you die. We could do this test on you. It's, it's not the DNA that is housed within the tumor itself. It is the DNA that makes up every cell of your body. So we can take either a blood sample or we can take a swab of your cheek, or we could even take some leftover uh, biopsy material and we could do the test on this. And this sort of gives you your baseline risk for developing not only prostate cancer, but potentially an aggressive prostate cancer. So that is one important aspect of it. Very interesting. And, and so is this really um, tailored to a particular individual? Is it is it that granular? Or at what level um, are you able to kind of, um, what precision level, I suppose, are you uh, able to kind of um, deal with? Is, is it to the individual level? Yes, it is. So, and that's what we're currently studying. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with what we're calling a composite risk index, which takes into account imaging features, biopsy features, and genomic features or germline sequencing features to come up with a risk score. And at the end of the day, we can say you are low risk or you are high risk, meaning you are two or three or four or 10 times more likely to eventually have aggressive prostate cancer in the future. So this project is trying to define that. And this is at the individual patient level and can be used very readily clinically. That's amazing uh, when you think about it. And um, I, I'm just imagining as you're talking about all of these different kinds of, uh, of inputs, all of the data associated with that, is that where machine learning comes into your project? Um, and I appreciate that you're not a data scientist, but um, if you could share with us, um, you know, how is machine learning being used in the context of your work? And maybe who is doing that work? Who else are you working with? Yeah, so this is... Uh... I have several things that I'd like to say to describe this, uh, and I have multiple projects that are uh, that are currently ongoing that could potentially use uh, machine learning. Now, with this 
particular project on active surveillance for, for prostate cancer. In terms of the analysis for the data, so, so what, what this germline sequencing is, is we are looking at a huge amount of information. We are looking at about uh, 1% of the uh, human genome, or which is a, a, a lot of data, and we are looking for thousands and thousands of different potential mutations. In fact, we're looking at every mutation that has ever been shown to be associated with prostate cancer, whether it's the development of prostate cancer, the aggressiveness of the prostate cancer, symptoms from prostate cancer, and how you respond to treatment from prostate cancer. And so in terms of how we analyze that, people have used machine learning in the past to basically sift through all that data. The other way that you can that I'm using machine learning is for the imaging aspect of it. So as we accrue, and obviously with machine learning, you need to have lots and lots of input, lots of data. And so uh, we, as, as we are accruing hundreds and thousands of men who are undergoing prostate MRI, for instance, uh, we are having a, basically a, an international consortium is what we're trying to make uh, between here, UCLA, uh, UCSF and others uh, to try to uh, basically put together about five to 6,000 prostate MRIs that we can then do machine learning on uh, to see if we can be expert level or even better than expert level at reading it. It's amazing. And I, I'm thinking about um, all of the advances in computer vision uh, in AI that have, I think, made uh, some of the work that you're talking about possible. Um, it's really quite fascinating. I, I'd like to turn now and, and talk a bit about uh, the patient perspective. If you could maybe describe, you know, what does all of this mean? So when we think about uh, maybe the traditional or the old ways of doing things versus, versus how you are moving forward with your research, what does this mean for the patient? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's what it all comes down to is medicine uh, in, in 2021 is all about, it's not about telling the patient what they should do. It's about providing information for the patient so that they can make an informed decision. And so what this uh, research will do is it will be able to uh, provide the patient with a more accurate assessment of what the likelihood is that their prostate cancer will one day be worse than it currently is. And what the chances are that they will one day need treatment for their prostate cancer. So that when I'm in a room with a, a man with low risk prostate cancer, rather than me saying, you know, there is about a 50% chance in the next 10 years, you will need to have your prostate removed or you will need to have radiation or you will need to have treatment for your prostate cancer. We can actually narrow that down. So, I mean, 50, 50, either yes or no, you will have it. We'll be able to say, you know, for you, there is a 15% chance in the next 10 years that you will require treatment for your prostate. Or for the man in the next room, there is a 90% chance that in the next 10 years, you will require treatment for your prostate cancer. And those conversations are very different. And how that leaves the patient uh, after that interaction and going home and interacting with their family and the concerns and the anxiety that it could potentially uh, invoke uh, is, is very uh, significant. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, just, you know, hearing that information and um, and what must be going through someone's mind as they're thinking about that. 
Um, and I'm wondering uh, about how you think about all of this. I mean, is this technology allowing you to make more accurate predictions or just is it about being more precise for that particular individual? Um, or how do you how do you think about that information as a clinician? I would say that this research will allow the clinician to more accurately assess the truth. Will more will be able to give the, the clinician the ability to say that you likely do have aggressive prostate cancer or will have aggressive prostate cancer. A problem with the way that we currently follow men on active surveillance with our current techniques is that this, this biopsy that they get every once in a while, it samples a very, very, very small fraction of the prostate. It samples less than 1% of the entire prostate. So the risk that there is a cancer over here that is not sampled is high. And so that means that we have to keep doing all these biopsies to not only see, has your cancer changed, but geez, did we actually miss your cancer the first time and the second time that we looked at it? And now the third or fourth or fifth time we're looking, we finally find it. This research project will allow us to more accurately determine upfront whether that prostate cancer is there, number one, and number two, if the prostate cancer is not there, the lowest prostate cancer that you have, will it eventually become a more aggressive cancer? And with this early intervention, does it mean that less aggressive forms of treatment can be applied or, or what does it look like uh, from that context? So, uh, you know, this is a really fun question for me because uh, another uh, aspect of my research is in prostate cancer treatment. It's not just in diagnostics, but it's in therapeutics as well. And so the way that we have traditionally treated prostate cancer has been where if you have any prostate cancer that is called aggressive, then we remove the entire gland, we remove the entire organ. And that's just simply not what we do for other organs. So for example, uh, it used to be where we would just remove the entire kidney if you had kidney cancer. Whereas now, the first line treatment option is to remove only the kidney tumor and leave the rest of the good kidney behind so that that kidney can provide function for you and you can stay off dialysis. Uh, similarly with breast cancer, rather than removing the entire breast, you can do a lumpectomy and just treat where the cancer is and save all the normal healthy tissue. Now with prostate cancer, with these more accurate tests, the imaging tests, the MRI and the micro ultrasound, we can actually see for the first time that there, where the prostate cancer is and importantly, where it is not. And because we are able to localize that prostate cancer, we can then turn to new treatments that treat only the region of cancer and leave the normal healthy tissue behind. And so that concept is called focal therapy. And that was one of the, the pillars of my uh, fellowship down at UCLA was, you know, diagnosing where the prostate cancer is and then treating where the prostate cancer is. And so uh, right now uh, we are doing studies with uh, several types of focal therapy uh, at the University of Alberta. And uh, the important thing with this is one, to make sure that it's safe, two, make sure it's effective, and then three, follow men long-term to make sure that it was a good treatment option and that we didn't have to treat the normal healthy prostate tissue uh, in the first place. 
That sounds amazing uh, and such a, a much more humane uh, kind of approach um, in so many ways. Um, and certainly, you know, would I, I imagine give a patient a, a greater sense of comfort in terms of actually, I know that you are a researcher um, in terms of thinking about um, these techniques and what you're talking about kind of being applied in a very wide way. How, how far away are we from that? Or is this kind of now being the new uh, becoming the new norm? Where are we at on that spectrum? So it certainly is being used uh, in clinical trials right now and in prospective uh, multi-center registries uh, because we want to make sure that we're doing it right. We don't want to make sure that we're just offering it sort of randomly or willy-nilly. We want to make sure that when we do it, we're following these men closely and we're getting meaningful information out of it so that we could op offer it to, uh, to all men eventually. Something that is important with prostate cancer research is thankfully for men, prostate cancer is something that takes a long time to kill a man. We are talking years rather than months or weeks. So this means that any study that we do where we are treating prostate cancer will need to go on for many years so that we can have enough events occur so that we can determine is this therapy doing a good job or is it not doing a good job? So what this means is that with this new technology, uh, Europe has actually been leading the way with focal therapy and they have over five year fall over a median of five year follow up for uh, several hundred men who they've treated with focal therapy and the results do look very promising. And now uh, there are randomized control trials that are starting uh, looking at uh, these therapies compared to the gold standard, which is removing the prostate surgically or radiation therapy. And it will take a while to get those results, but it's important that it's starting now. Yeah, obviously it makes sense to, to have that level of due diligence. And it, it does sound like it is very promising. I'm wondering about uh, whether there are, are there some bigger themes at play here? We've been talking very specifically about prostate cancer, but when we're uh, thinking about the types of techniques that you're pioneering, um, do you see the potential for other applications in other domains? Um, what's your take on that? So I think globally, from a, from a technique perspective, certainly combining advanced imaging with genomics that can be used in any, uh, in any disease setting, uh, in any cancer setting, in you know, inflammatory bowel disease, in, in any disease really. Now, the type of imaging that you would be doing and the type of genes that you would be looking at are likely different between the different uh, disease processes. But the theme of combining imaging with genomics is, is something that is not necessarily even a new idea, but something that many people are looking at uh, worldwide and also uh, at the University of Alberta as well. Was it something that machine learning made possible? I think that machine learning is another tool that we have to potentially make the research uh, better. Uh, it is a new tool that we can use to analyze a large set of data that we could not analyze previously. I don't think that machine learning is making this possible for the first time, but it's allowing us to take the research in new directions. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I want to talk a bit more about um, the, these new directions and um, and this idea of precision health, which I think is a, a theme in your work. And I'm just curious to know where you think we're heading. Like when you think about technology and you think about medicine, where where are we heading as these two things intersect? So I think that the best example of this is if you look at uh, genomics or gen the genetics of the patient. So rather than saying that you have prostate cancer, and that is a global term. We can say that you have prostate cancer and a mutation in this specific gene. And you know, we have a drug for this specific gene. So with for your prostate cancer, we're going to treat you with drug A. And then for your neighbor who has prostate cancer and a mutation in another gene, we are going to treat you with drug B. So it is really tailoring medicine to at the patient level. And the analogy that I would give is it's like saying that I drive a car, but there's lots of different cars out there that you could potentially drive. And if we know exactly what sort of car you're driving, then I know what sort of gas I need to put into it. I know where I need to take it to get serviced. And it is a much more sort of tailored way of knowing about the patient. Fantastic. I'm wondering about the team. And, and one of the themes that we were exploring on this series of the podcast is this idea of interdisciplinary research. So people from uh, computer science, working with people in medicine, potentially having other people on their team. Can you tell us a little bit about your research team? I'd love to. So my research team, uh, I collaborate with uh, a lot of people uh, locally and internationally. So uh, locally, I had mentioned that uh, I collaborate uh, closely with uh, Dr. Evangelos Michalakis, who's a cardiologist and, uh, and clinician researcher. I collaborate with Dr. Gopinath Satendra, who is a PhD and discovery researcher. And internationally, I collaborate with uh, other urologists, with uh, engineers, biomedical engineers, computer scientists at UCLA, and geneticists and bioinformaticians. And what's really exciting for me is that I get to explore research that would not be possible if I were just doing it by myself, because I could not do this really uh, state-of-the-art uh, germline sequencing test that we are doing without uh, collaboration with Dr. Paul Boutros at UCLA, who is a world leader in this in terms of the new uh, uh, advanced imaging tests. Uh, these are, uh, I'm collaborating with industry, with uh, the company that makes the new micro ultrasound uh, device. And their, their head of research is, uh, is uh, Dr. Brian Woodlinger, who uh, you know I'm, I'm collaborating with and we're having meetings every second week. And the exciting thing is that we're, we're getting this technology at the U of A. It actually just arrived yesterday um, and it's in the shipping dock. So I'm excited to start using that. Oh, that's amazing. That was actually going to be my next question. Just in terms of the U of A, what do you love about being at the University of Alberta what do you, or the greater community of Alberta itself when it comes to supporting uh, your research? Yeah. So, you know, I'm very biased with this because I was born and raised uh, in Edmonton. My wife is born and raised in Edmonton. We're both graduates of the University of Alberta. My wife's an emergency physician as well, and she's starting some research projects on, on e-scooter injuries, which is really exciting. And I think that the University of Alberta is, I've always loved coming to the University of Alberta because it is 
really fun to walk around campus and to know that there are everyone you see is just so knowledgeable in something that I have absolutely no experience in or formal education in. I like walking through campus and seeing that, you know, there's engineers and the stuff, the way that they approach a problem is completely different from the way that I approach a problem. And then in the same cup of coffee, you're down by the hospital. And that's my second home where I spent a lot of time during medical school and residency. And uh, we're, we're treating patients. And so the discoveries that are made uh, on campus are being translated into technologies and, and medications that we're using to treat patients. And it's all happening within the same square kilometer. So that's what I really like about the University of Alberta. Yeah, I um, I share that sentiment. I think there's a great community and um, it's wonderful to see so much collaboration taking place across all the different disciplines. I'm wondering, is there anything that I haven't asked you about yet that uh, either pertains to your research or just your general uh, sense of where precision uh, health is going? Anything else? Or, or if you want to talk more about, uh, about your uh, research specifically, anything else that I haven't asked you that you would like to share with our listeners? I think it is an exciting time for precision medicine and for machine learning. It is an exciting time because I think that the collaborations between clinicians, computer scientists, engineers, they have started. And we are now moving forward together, recognizing that we can use these new technologies and techniques to start to answer uh, some questions that we've never been able to, to answer before. And I think that now that clinicians are becoming aware of the sort of data that computer scientists need to analyze, that really synergizes together to, to push things forward. And so, for example, I know that uh, I need to start developing large data sets of imaging files for, uh, for patients, or you need to start collecting, you know, hundreds and thousands of ECGs if you're a cardiologist so that it can be analyzed. And so I'm just really excited with the promise of this technology and that it's not something that is really far off in the future, but it's something that is now and it's something that the University of Alberta excels in. And I'm really happy to be a part of it. That's wonderful. And my last question is, what's next for you? Uh, what, what are your future plans? Well, in the short term, it is grant season and I'm currently writing a ton of uh, grants, my, writing my CHR grant. And then there's uh, several uh, local and national competitions that uh, that I'm writing grants for. In terms of my research direction, I am having my first trainees starting with me uh, in September. I have a master's student starting with me and a biomedical engineering co-op student starting with me. And I'm really excited for that experience and to uh, to be a, a mentor to uh, to trainees. Well, Dr. Kinnaird, I would like to say thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. 
This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.